Corolla Digital. Hi, everybody. This is Pat O'Brien. Either your grandfather, your father, or you grew up with me doing sports for the last 30 years. Plus, all the entertainment and pop culture things that I did, all those red carpets for you out there. Now, we're putting all that in a podcast. The Pat O'Brien Show. Go to iTunes and find it. Go to thepatobrianshow.com. We're here. We work for you on The Pat O'Brien Show. Thanks. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who needs more than 11 angry men. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And boy, oh boy, it's a beautiful day today here in Southern California. It's just gorgeous. It's just in the textbook for Southern California. That's how good it is. And yet, you know what? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. No matter what the weather is, no matter what the mood is, no matter how anyone feels, when that music comes on, I feel there's a spring in my step and that everything's going my way and that uh, we're walking in tall cotton. And they get better every week, of course. That's the Jaime Scherzer Orchestra with the Jenny Monroe Dancers featuring boy tenor Joe Massett asking the musical question, Why is the Benny Goodman classic Sing, Sing, Sing an instrumental? That's a pretty good question. Thank you, Joe, for sending that in. It is a terrific question. And by the way, I thought you folks would like to know, and so did Colonel Jeff, that... That song was in my head. It's a great bop, beat, cool, jazzy, syncopated song. It's just terrific. And it's from the Benny Goodman Orchestra. But I didn't know this till we looked it up, that it was written by Louis Prima. And Louis Prima just was all sorts of fun in so many different ways as a musician, as just a personality of the era. He was one of those... uh, well, high tone guys. He was just someone to walk out there. Hi, everybody. Ah, hi. He was he was great to watch, and he wrote the whole thing. So there were lyrics, but the song I knew, and the song that's playing, and the song that everybody really knows in their heads. I hope you know it, but it's the Benny Goodman version. And uh, by the way, before that, there was a Fletcher Henderson version, which I didn't know about. I didn't know that name. But that's another good name for a band leader. You know what I mean? When you run across Fletcher Henderson, you say, well, uh, that sounds like a pretty good name for a band leader. But this one is the Benny Goodman classic, Sing, Sing, Sing. And he and his band at the time recorded it in Hollywood in 1937. Folks, what a band they had that day. They had some folks who played with Benny Goodman all the time, like Gene Krupa on drums, and there was no one better than him. And you know what? 
There was Harry James on trumpet. Oh, oh, so what a what a staff they had there. What a great group of, of musicians they had. And they had a fella named, that's right, Jaime Scherzer. And so at the time, just reading that name, well, a few minutes ago, <laughs> I think it was the colonel who said, you know what, why don't we put him in charge of the orchestra this week? And, well, that sounded good to me. Because you have all these names, some famous, Gene Krupa, Harry James, and uh, and even know Louis Prima, and then even knowing Fletcher Henderson, that sounds like a great name. And then they put in there because he was working with Benny Goodman, the Jaime Scherzer Orchestra, and uh, he was a great musician and did many many things. But the point is that they recorded this in Hollywood in 1937. It's terrific if you ever hear if you can run into it. Well, you can run into it by googling it. And uh, did I say that correctly? I just looked through the window there. Say, I'm getting pretty good at this. Well, good enough just above the rank of moron. But, yeah, you know what? If you if you like that, put in Sing, Sing, Sing from Benny Goodman and listen to it, and you love the beat and you love everything about it. And so the answer to the question, to Joe Massett's question, his musical question, and now... It really is this week a musical question. How do you like that? It just hit me. Well, pretty good, Joe. And his question is, why is the Benny Goodman classic Sing, Sing, Sing an instrumental? Well, it's a good question. But now you know why, because you know a little of the history, and you know a little of the great musicians who are playing it. These terrific jazz guys, these bop guys, who were so cool and so talented and wow folks and that's why the song exists but why is it an instrumental because that's the coolest version of it there is and that's why recorded in hollywood in 1937 and by dollar shave club that's right a new sponsor dollarshaveclub.com folks why are razors so expensive? I've asked this many times before, as you ha- fans of the show know. I, I've loved talking about this, and I think you do too, because it's, the, it's an unanswerable question. Why are the razors so expensive? Well, guess what? DollarShaveClub.com sends amazing quality razors and other cool bathroom stuff Right to your door for a couple of bucks a month. It really couldn't be any easier. DollarShaveClub.com doesn't waste their money on gazillionaire athletes. So they charge a fraction of what those big shave companies charge. Signing up couldn't be easier. That's the best part. Just go to DollarShaveClub.com and pick a razor plan. They have three to choose from. Then every month, like clockwork, you'll get a package in the mail with... Dollar Shave Club Blades. And they've got other great stuff like Dr. Carver's Easy Shave Butter. I'm glad, I'm glad you hear me, that the shave butter is easy because I think we've all had the difficult shave butter. That's no good at all. But thanks to DollarShaveClub.com, you'll never forget to buy blades. You'll never get nicked up from squeezing one too many shaves out of that last expensive blade in your pack. So... Say no. That's the point. 
Say no to the big shave company's millionaire athletes. Not my phrase, but okay. And ridiculous prices. Join me, the folks, at This Week with Larry Miller. And as you know, that's Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris. And the hundreds of thousands of guys who've upgraded to the smarter way to shave. Visit dollarshaveclub.com slash Larry today. Shave time, shave money. Also not my phrases, but I'm just saying that's pretty good. Shave time, shave money. Go to dollarshaveclub.com slash Larry. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash Larry. I'm glad you dollarshaveclub.com guys are with us, and I hope we make you a zillion dollars. And by Squarespace. Squarespace, one word, Squarespace. They had a good ad on the Super Bowl, and it was good because I knew, number one, we have a relationship, they're a sponsor. So when I saw an ad for Squarespace, I thought, holy mackerel, if there's an ad for Squarespace on the Super Bowl, and there's an ad for Squarespace here on my show, I thought, is that possible that that brings us so close to all the guys who played in the Super Bowl? Well, the truth is, no, probably it doesn't bring us that close at all. But it's pretty neat to be in the same team. Squarespace, folks, is the easiest way to create an exceptional website. How hard is it to build a website? You know how hard. It's very hard. Not with Squarespace, though. Squarespace provides everything you need to create a beautiful website for you or your business. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. And don't worry about getting stuck along the way. Don't worry about that. You worry too much. With Squarespace, making your site is easier than ever. Plus, they have a 24-7 support team. Simply add your own content, customize your style, and you'll have a website that looks great on every device. Seriously, it's that easy. Try Squarespace today for how much? For free. That's how much. Now, trust me, you'll, you'll love your new website. And when you're ready to go live, enter Larry at checkout and save 10%. Plus, you get free hosting. Come on, use promo code Larry at squarespace.com slash Larry Miller. Squarespace.com slash Larry Miller. I'm glad those guys are with us, too. Squarespace.com slash Larry Miller. By the way, they have that twice. They have that on, on all the ads we have. They always put that, in case you think I'm saying it twice, to get my name out there. It's not. They always say, hey, do it this way, squarespace.com slash Larry Miller, and then they just repeat the whole thing. So I do, too. All right. That brings me to my favorite part of the show, which a lot of you know is the joke of the week. That's right. The joke of the week. The weekly joke. And I love doing this because it's fun to pass along a joke. You like jokes. I like jokes. Everyone likes jokes that are tellable, where you can pass this on to your friends or to your family. And this one is a, this is a good one. This is uh, called An American in London. And here we go. An American Jew was shopping on Regent Street in London. 
he entered a posh gourmet food store and a sales representative in a long morning coat with tie and tails and spats approached and says, May I be of help to you, sir? And he says, well, Yes, I'd, I'd like a pound of lox. I'm sorry, sir. Do you mean smoked salmon? Okay, a pound of smoked salmon. Anything else, sir? Yes, a dozen blintzes. I believe you mean crepes, sir. Okay, a dozen crepes, whatever you say. Anything else, sir? Uh, yes, a pound of chopped liver. You're probably referring to pâté, sir. Okay, a pound of pâté. And could you deliver all this on Saturday? Saturday? Sorry, sir, we don't slept that chasaray on Shabbos. <laughs> probably shouldn't have laughed right off the bat there, but it's so much fun to say that line. <laughs> In any case, so he's so so he he sounds like an English Jew too, but anyway, that's a pretty good joke, and that's from another good network that we like here, JewishJokes.net, and they always have, uh, well, they have good stories like that thing, and uh, glad those guys are here. Yeah, that always amazed me. By the way, I I, I was at. Visiting a friend who lived in England, my friend Hamilton, I've talked about, and he and his wife and their kids were uh, all in a, well, one of those fancy uh, tan, you know, buildings that, uh, well, they're houses, but they, they all, they're all lined up together on a street. And uh, he took me to, he had a friend who was the young duke. And the, there's an old duke, but this was the young duke, Alistair. And boy, I always liked him and He's got a great family, and uh, but they were young. We were all knuckleheaded kids at that point. And uh, he said, uh, Larry, this, whatever it was, I was there for a couple of weeks working at the Queen's Theater. It was a great place to be. And uh, he said, Larry, we're going to the Young Duke's. He always called him the Young Duke. He doesn't say Alistair. He said, we're going to the Young Duke's place for dinner. He's having some people over. Oh, okay, you know, that's fine with me. And you get all dressed up, and we drove out there. And out there means, you know, you drive through a village that looks like a village in a movie, and it looks beautiful, because, and it's owned by the Duke and the old Duke and the young Duke, and however many Dukes go back. So we go to, do they have a castle? They We went to a castle there for the young Duke, and we sat down. First of all, of course, you have cocktails, and the guys, once again, who look like, well, John Gilgood come out there with the trays of things, and they give you a cocktail, and uh, then they give you a couple more. So you have, so we haven't eaten all day. I'm pretty hungry, and now I've had, well, three or four, pretty solid British martinis, and there's no, there's nothing to eat along the way. There's no pigs in a blanket where you can have three or four of those and feel you've had something. So I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting a pretty sharp set. We sit down at a big, long table in the hall of big, long tables, and they have guys, what do they call them, footmen or something, who stand behind your chairs, you know, 10 feet behind, or they come out through the door from I, the kitchen of something. It, you know, it's a pretty pretty fancy place. And uh, so I'm pretty hungry, and everyone's pretty hungry. And they bring out the first course, and they put it on the silver plates with the silver top on it, and they put it down in front of everybody at the same second, lift the tops, and I see... Well, it's a piece of locks, one piece, but I mean a piece of locks. 
and that's okay. And it doesn't look like the greatest piece of locks in the world, but that's okay. And I said, oh, all right, fantastic. I said to Pete, hey, look at this, locks. And uh, Alistair said to me, uh, Larry, and he's he's a great guy, and he's, he's, he smiled and said, uh, Larry, it's not locks, it's smoked salmon. And I said, Alistair, you got a great place here and you're fun to hang out with, but please don't tell me anything about locks, okay? I think I know something about locks. You think you have nice locks here? There's a place called Brooklyn where I was born, and they have some pretty nice locks too. And it's better than this. He said, Larry, it's smoked salmon. I said, it's locks. And Pete was saying to me, Larry, they call it smoked salmon. I said, I don't care what they call it. Well, I was a little loaded. <laughs> and I said, I, I, don't, I don't care what they call it. But that always puzzled me. So, by the way, I ate the piece of locks, which was terrible. But that's not the point. Whatever they have there, you're going to eat, and that's fine. And it's brought by servants, and that's fine, too. And, you know, they'll give you anything else. It's not a great place to eat like one of those places. And the whole country is not necessarily the greatest place to eat. But all right, everything there is smoked. And uh, that's what I've never understood, why things that we know and I know by certain names suddenly become an older name with the word smoked in front of it. I don't care. doesn't bother me. Well... Unless I'm in a foreign country and I'm hungry. Then it bothers me. Which brings us to our next segment, the Poetry Corner. Oops, I'm sorry. It's the Smoked Poetry Corner. In any case, it's the Weekly Poetry Corner, which is another wonderful look at a great way to think and live in in the hands of a great poet. And this week, it's brought to you by... Sherry's Berries. That's right. This is a special time of the year. This is Valentine's Day time. And Colonel Jeff and I thought that it was a good time to put the Sherry's Berries ad. They've been an old, old, uh, well, a sponsor of ours, and we and we love them, and we love their berries. And we thought a good place to put it was near the Poetry Corner. Because let's be honest, if you're going to read poetry... And listen to poetry, well, it's probably better than having a piece of very thin smoked locks. In any case, the Poetry Corner is brought to you by Sherry's Berries. And you know what, folks? They want to know, and it's a good question, what's the worst Valentine's Day gift you have ever given or received? Now, I know my job as the husband is to get a nice Valentine's Day gift. It, it, it doesn't, nothing else matters, really. I, I'm the one who has to get the good gift for my wife. Why? I don't know, but I know that I have to get it. You don't know either, but if you're a guy, you have to get it. Now, is there a trade-off? Do women give men Valentine's Day gifts? No, but that's all right. Again, that's okay. They could this year because the truth is it was it was it's hard to make it up to someone if you're given a bad gift and it's it's you can't just buy the next week something for triple that or next year something for quadruple that so don't make the mistake again you're going to be unhappy and the person you gift the gift to is going to be unhappy order sherry's berries now for guaranteed gift satisfaction now here's here's the thing here's what they give you here's the offer 
giant freshly dipped strawberries from Shari's Berries starting at $19.99. Over a 40% savings or double the berries for just $10 more. I love how you can do that. Or wait, I'm not finished now. I'm not going away. That's not all there is. Double the berries for just $10 more. You just need my code, Larry Miller, when you order. Boy, that's a pretty deep code they picked for us, isn't it? It's not spelled backwards. There's no one R that's turned the other way. The secret code is Larry Miller. So these things, though, I'll tell you what are good. They're here now. I have them every week because we get them. Adam's show gets them. Everybody gets them here. We get boxes of them and boxes of them. They don't they don't last long. Dipped in white milk and dark chocolatey goodness. They're topped with chocolate chips, decorative swizzle, or nuts, and forty uh, percent off from Sherry's Berries. Enormous, romantic, fresh, juicy, mouth watering. That's not you. That's the berries, by the way. That's a pretty good thing for us to be, too. That's a good line. Enormous, romantic, fresh, juicy, mouth-watering. I think if you eat enough of the berries, you might be a step further in that direction. Here's the only way to get this amazing Valentine's Day deal. Giant, freshly dipped strawberries starting at $19.99 or double the berries for just $10 more. Visit, ready, berries.com. Now, that's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Berries.com, and click on the microphone in the top right corner and type in the secret code Larry Miller. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone, and type in Larry Miller. Order today. You know what, folks? With any product you ever order, you're going to be happy with Sherry's Berries. We are here. And now that brings us to our, our poem for the Poetry Corner. And this is a wonderful thing to do to add for me to be able to say on the show another way of looking at life. And this way is from someone I had never read from before, John Clare, C-L-A-R-E. He's English, and he lived from 1793 to 1861, and he got a lot of fame later in life and after his life, as so often happens to artists and poets, after they, well, after, long after they've passed on, into the 20th century, in fact, it became known that John Clare was thought, everyone said, hey, you know, he was pretty good. And uh, he was up in heaven already saying, sure, now. But this is a good poem, and it made it made me smile, and it made me think. And uh, the same thing would have happened to to Colonel Jeff, but he doesn't understand these things. and uh, But he liked it too. So here we go. By John Clare, it's called First Love. I ne'er was struck before that hour with love so sudden and so sweet. Her face, it bloomed like a sweet flower and stole my heart away complete. My face turned pale, as deadly pale. My legs refused to walk away, and when she looked, what could I ail? 
My life and all seemed turned to clay, and then my blood rushed to my face and took my eyesight quite away. The trees and bushes around the place seemed midnight at noonday. I could not see a single thing. Words from my eyes did start. They spoke as chords do from the string, and blood burst round my heart. Are flowers the winter's choice? Is love's bed always snow? She seemed to hear my silent voice, not love's appeals to know. I never saw so sweet a face as that I stood before. My heart has left its dwelling place and can return no more. Isn't that lovely? And that's, as I was saying to the colonel before, it's so nice that he just drew what he was thinking and feeling. This is before he even says hello. Boy, is he in for it. But I just mean, it's it's before he even mentions how he feels and starts to get to know this woman. But that's how lovely it is. As That's why the title is so right. First Love by John Clare. And now that brings us to our magic movie moment, which is another segment I adore just so much because the magic movie moment, and today it also turns into a story because our magic movie moment came at the exact same time of the Super Bowl. And my kids invited some friends over, and that's fine. They... They're all good kids, and one of the kids brought a big bowl of homemade guacamole and said, my dad made this just to bring to the Super Bowl party today. And uh, I said, oh, that's awfully nice. Even though what I was thinking was, why do you bother with that? You know, we can handle food here. We don't need homemade guacamole, but that's all right. And they all went downstairs to the den to where the TV is, and then one of my kids said to me, hey, Dad, you can sit with us and watch the game. Why don't you sit with us? And I was very touched by that. I thought, how do you like that? I said to him, that's awfully sweet. Thank you very much. It means the world. And you know, folks, though, when the game started and they got through those, well, a lot of the pregame things that you all know about, and I'm not going to make fun of them. It's easy, but I'm not going to do it. But I suddenly felt in there cheering and whooping and laughing at whether the shoelaces are long enough on the guy's cleats that they're showing as he puts them on. But you know what? I thought to myself, and I said to my wife upstairs, you know, I walked up and I said, you know, it doesn't feel that I want to bother them. They're, they're kids. They should just be together. And, uh, well, it's seven or eight boys down there. They don't need dad down there. They need to be doing what? Well, you know, seven or eight boys like to do, which is, well, beat each other up. They want to beat on each other. They want to punch each other. They want to have those little games that boys always have. That Oh, you missed that one. That means you get 12 free shots on the arm, whatever that is, you know. I used to do those. You probably used to do those, too. But I said to my wife, you know what? I don't want to bother them. I'll, I'll see them later. And the, I went uh, into our bedroom and just got into bed, which is always nice. But that's not why I did it. I didn't I didn't want to be alone, 
But I said to myself, you know what, folks? Sometimes it's good to watch even a great game, a Super Bowl, alone, and the game was about to start, and just on a roll of the dice, just by chance, I said to myself, I wonder what old movies are on right now, because that's a big thing I love very much anyway. And I said, I wonder what's on right now. And so I went to, in this case, it was Turner Classic Movies, and I went on there, and just starting is a great movie called 12 Angry Men. I hope you've seen it. If you haven't, see it sometime. It's a wonderful movie. Oh, folks, the writing is great. It's directed by Sidney Lumet and produced as well as starring Henry Fonda. It was also produced by Henry Fonda. And folks, so this is 1957. What a what a great movie this is. And by the way, very hard to make because it's in a jury room in a New York courtroom in 1957. So remember, there's no air conditioning, no water machines, nothing you or I might think of that would just help the time pass. Well, like air conditioning or water machine. But they didn't have any of that, and it's not a big room. These are small rooms. And the only thing in them is 12 angry men. And the way this story moves and the way the people get angry at themselves, angry at each other, the way things start. And you can see they're sweating there. They take their jackets off and loosen their ties. But it's starting that, first of all, it's 11 to 1 that he's guilty. They want to, and guilty in those days meant, you know, they're going to electrocute him or hang him. And this is a kid who's 17 years old or something. And, you know, this is not going to go well. And they're all really against this kid, except for Henry Fonda. And that's essentially the story where he starts to just ask questions. Well, but what do we think about this? What do we think about that? And it gets so much anger brought over to him, especially by, well, the lead angry guy, you might call him, the great Lee J. Cobb, one of the greatest actors we've ever had. His last name is spelled C-O-B-B, Lee J. Cobb. Look him up and see some of the things he's been in. He knows how to be funny. He knows how to be very dramatic. He knows how to be dark and mean. If you you ever saw On the Waterfront, great, great movie, but if you ever saw On the Waterfront, Lee J. Cobb is the head of the gangsters there. Now, they they run the union, but he's this is a guy who's not kidding around, and he's very mean. He kills a lot of people. But Lee J. Cobb knew how to be funny, too. He He always, in all the Flint movies with James Coburn, he always knew... And uh, Cobb was always hired to play the head of the CIA or whatever the intelligence community was. And and uh, James Coburn, when Lee J. Cobb comes to see him and say, we, uh, Flint, we need you now. You've, you've got to help stop the guy who wants to change all the weather or whatever the, it was happening at the time. And, of course, Cobb has four or five beautiful young women in there who were setting up breakfast and massaging his neck. And Cobb said... Well, sir, I'd, I'd, I, you know, or rather Coburn says, sir, I, I'd be happy to, but uh, first I, I'll have to, I'll have to do it 
when I get back from the uh, Bolshoi ballet class in in Moscow. And Cobb says to him, it's a great part in the movie, a great line. Cobb says to him, Flint, I have to hand it to you. How do you find the time with all you do to still go to Moscow and take ballet lessons and... and Coburn, you know, Coburn says to him, Oh, no, sir, to teach, not to take, to teach the ballet classes, sir. And those movies were always wonderful in that regard. They just set him up, Oh, this guy knows everything. But Cobb was always great. And in this, 12 Angry Men, you can see, and it's as such a good actor, he's so hurt inside. He's so angry inside. And it comes out, and his teeth snarl, and he he hates that Henry Fonda seems to be picking at this scab and holding things back and down in that jury room. And he wants to just vote this kid is guilty and this kid should be executed. And he just wants to get out there and get out of the building and leave and go home. It's Friday afternoon in August in New York at about 5 o'clock. And it's hot. And he wants to leave. But folks, what there's a, many magic movie moments in this for me. And this one goes to, this is well known. I, I suppose people call this a spoiler alert, but it's, it's not really in this movie. As Henry Fonda begins to gather people to his side, he points out this and he points out that. And people begin one by one to say, you know what? I think he's not guilty too. And I, I'm going to start voting the other side. And this makes Lee J. Cobb's character just nuts angry. He gets angrier and angrier. And then from 11 to 1 in Cobb's favor, as soon as they go in the jury room, well, after a couple of hours, suddenly it's 11 to 1 the other way in Henry Fonda's favor. And he has everyone on his side. And by the way, the thought process and the hurt that each of these jurors go through and the honesty which which they look inside themselves really and then suddenly begin to nod and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. I vote not guilty too. And now it's 11 to 1 and there's been anger and and violence and, you know, you never know what's going to go on here. And finally, though, Cobb gets madder and madder. I'm not changing. I do this. We know he's guilty. We know he's that. And suddenly he looks in his wallet and says, look, I've got all the evidence here. I got the, I got the piece of paper from and a picture of his son falls out with him. And he and his son, the son was about, oh, 20 years old at that time and has a football in his arms and they're, they're laughing as father and son should. But we already know from the movie He hasn't seen his son. He threw his son out. He's very angry at the son. He's very angry at everyone. But he sees that picture, and it's clear to us what he was angry about the whole time. It's not about this kid who was on trial. It's about the way he's lived his life and what he made of him and his son and hasn't seen him in so long. And he he gets mad, and he starts to tear the picture up. And then, folks, it's great acting. The acting is so good. And then he just, well, he starts shaking a little and he falls apart. And he sits down and 
starts crying. One of those lines from that moment is, you work your life out. But it just happens. He collapses. And as he's weeping, he says in a very audible tone, but a little softer, he says, not guilty, not guilty. He changes over and goes to not guilty. But this most dramatic of characters in this most dramatic of moments. And that's very moving. And at that point, it's 12 to nothing. The kid is voted not guilty. And Martin Balsam, another great actor, gets up. He was the foreman, and he leans through the door, opens the door and says to the guard there, we're ready. Tell the judge we're ready to come back. And all the men in there pick up their jackets and put them on again, as hot as it was in there. And they put themselves together, and they straighten their ties. And, well, in just under a minute, the whole room clears out, except for Henry Fonda, and Lee J. Cobb. They weren't slowing down, but Henry puts his jacket on, and Cobb is still, well, torn apart. He's still at that table, the jury table, and he's, his head is still on the table. And Henry Fonda does something that's so touching. He looks at him, and without changing, he doesn't overact this or act it at all. He just goes and takes Cobb's jacket off the hanger, walks over to him on the other side of the table, holds the jacket out. Cobb looks up at him and just holds his arm out as he starts to stand up, and Henry Fonda puts the jacket on him, and together they walk out. Not together as friends. This is not going to be the start of new pals or, gee, how do you like that? What a terrific way to meet a new friend. But for that moment, we, the audience, know that this character, Cobb's character, has, well, he's learned the lesson. And at least, thank God, this young man is not going to be sent to the electric chair today because he's innocent. We know he's innocent. And Henry Fonda and the jury knew he was innocent. And finally, Lee J. Cobb knew he was innocent, too. And... You know what? As they walk out, it's very well directed and edited. They don't show you them going back to the courtroom. They just show them walking out. Just Henry Fonda walks out of the courthouse and down those long steps. Oh, there must be 50 of those big steps in the New York courthouse there with big pillars. And as he walks out, we see and we smile and we breathe Deeply, because it's still a nice day. It's the end of a day on a Friday in August in New York, and it's certainly cooler out there than it was in that jury room. And the two jurors, the old man who supported Henry Fonda the whole way, walks up, and we always liked him in the jury room. And he comes up and says, Say, I don't even know your name. And Henry Fonda just says his name from the movie. And the old fellow with a smile just says, McArdle. And uh, then there's just a brief moment, and he says, well, see ya. And it's that simple, but it's that nicely done, and that's the movie miracle moment for me, that no matter what happens, what story is told, these two, with that late-day sunlight on those courthouse steps, these two can smile at each other. They don't go overboard. They don't say, Hey, let's go out and have a drink and a bite of food together. 
They just say, you know what? We've done our job here, and we did it well. We came to the right place. And you know what? What's your name? And in those days, it was stylish. Men would just say the last name. Well, Fox, Miller, McArdle. And you know what? That's a nice place to leave it because that, to me, is magic movie moment. So much happens in that tiny room that takes us from one point to another. Every character is played so well. Good Lord. Oh, Lee J. Cobb, Jack Klugman, Edward Binns, Jack Warden, Henry Fonda. So many. Martin Balsam. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the the names of some of the others there. But those 12 men played them beautifully, and we see them change. And we feel the change. And that change, that movement from one point to another, from guilt to innocence, makes us willing and happy to walk out onto those steps the way Henry Fonda does at the end of the movie. We smile and take a deep breath the way he does. And then these two characters meet and smile at each other and say their names and say, well, see ya. And that's a magic movie moment because it's so well done that we feel it too. And then, well, folks, then, after watching the credits and after watching Robert Osborne say something about that movie, then I'll tell you what, we can, I could be happy enough to walk downstairs and rejoin my kids and their friends and their chicken wings and their dried potato chips and just sit there with the dog and my wife, who is finished. She made a really a wonderful spread for them. And you know what? I could enjoy the rest of the game, too. But it answered my question, and that's why it can, well, pulls it all together that Even on a Super Bowl Sunday, would you rather watch 11 angry men or 12 angry men? And you know what? My answer would be, first of all, 12. I'm always going to see that wonderful movie or any other great movie that starts. But in this case, it could be both. I know it was a tough game, and I know one team played really well. Seattle played really, really well, and they played like folks who wanted to win that game, and they won it. And Denver, just as you know, couldn't pull it together and didn't quite look so good, but there you are. That game's over, and 12 angry men lives forever. So you know what, folks? That teaches us one of the good lessons and truths to go through life with, and it hasn't changed at all. Homer is Homer, and Pluto is a planet. So remember, as always, if you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who loves you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's still the truest thing I know. Be well, have a great week, We'll see you here next time.